Welcome to episode three of Mission Transition, Powering BC's Clean Energy Economy. We're a Sierra Club BC podcast mini-series about the transition to the next economy. Hi, I'm Susan Ellerington, along with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. In this episode, we're getting to work looking at jobs in the next economy. What's going to change in what work we do, the way we work, where we work, why we work. So, Caitlin, we're going to start. I have a question for you. Do you have a good job? I do. Why? What makes it a good job? Uh, well, you know, I work in the nonprofit sector, so I'm not necessarily valuing my job based on money. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I get a lot of meaning from my work. I feel like I'm doing something that feels good in the world. I really love the, the great team of people that I get to work with. I have a lot of flexibility in my hours. I can walk to work. It's interesting because we generally don't talk about any of that stuff when we talk about jobs in the economy. We just, it's a numbers game. How mm -hmm. many jobs were created? How many jobs were lost? And I think this transition to a clean energy economy gives us an opportunity to change the whole way we look at work. Yeah, I mean, for sure the numbers are important because people want to have jobs and need to have jobs to support their family. And so, you know, we do need to look at numbers of jobs. But at the same time, there's this question about um how are we working and, and are they family supporting jobs with good benefits and are they jobs where people can live close to home? And Are they jobs that are easy on people's bodies so that we're not using up money in the healthcare system? There, there are all sorts of elements to, to what we look at with jobs that, that just simply don't seem to be considered at all right now. Um, and, and as we say, that's what we're talking about now is how could we look at the role of work in our lives. But we do have to spend a bit of time talking about the jobs that aren't going to be there in the future. For sure. So as we look, you know, towards the opportunity of what new jobs are created, we want to also look at um, what are the jobs that we're going to be losing. And I think the obvious place to start there is that um, as we move away from a fossil fuel-based economy, we no longer need or we're no longer able to be extracting fossil fuels like gas or coal or oil from the ground. And so the people who work in those industries, so that might be fracking in northeastern BC or the tar sands in northern Alberta, these are jobs that we're going to need to shift away from. Yeah. And when you think about it, a few short years ago, you know, if you were a young person in BC, there was a pretty good chance that you'd had the conversation with somebody about going and working up in oil and gas to make some money and, you know, um, buy a house and get all sorts of things that you want. And then along in you know, came 2015 and the price of oil dropped. And that changed the whole picture on what oil and gas jobs were about. Thousands of jobs were lost. Now, a few have come back since then, but it's a pretty murky outlook for the oil and gas industry, you know, and that's even if we don't make the move to a clean economy. Say more about that. A number of reasons. First of all, would be a changing demographic. You know, remember all of those boomers who are now retiring and aging out of jobs? The oil and gas industry in North America is facing a pretty serious skills shortage, particularly among young people. Caitlin, that's Jeff Dembicki. Now, he's just recently published a book called Are We Screwed? How a New Generation is Fighting to Survive Climate Change. And he says the oil and gas industry, particularly tar sands, they're having a rough time attracting young workers. For previous generations, oil and gas was the industry you would go into to see the world and to make tons of money and, and to learn highly technical skills. Um, and the change now is if 
if you're a young person just entering the workforce, you're seeing, for instance, Shell saying that oil demand could peak within five years, or you're seeing disasters like the BP spill, you're seeing agreements like the one that was negotiated in Paris, and all of these signals are kind of pointing to a world without fossil fuels. And so if you're young and thinking about your job future a few decades from now, it makes much, much more sense to go to work for the clean industries of the future. So what else is affecting the jobs outlook for oil and gas? In a word, technology. I don't know if you heard recently, there was a piece on the news about Suncor. And they're putting those great big trucks that are in the um, tar sands, they're now driverless. And they're, they've been slowly putting a fleet of those into place. 400 jobs are going to be lost solely because of the technology that now they can have the, essentially a robot driving the big trucks in the tar sands. That's just the beginning. I mean, when you think about it, Caitlin, if you're a CEO of a big oil company, efficiency for you is eliminating variable costs and those are labor costs. So you want to eliminate as much as you can the labor costs and technology is just making that more possible every day. Right. So that's just one more example of how big corporations don't necessarily have the interests of either their workers or the planet uh, when they're making their day-to-day business decisions. And they're generally managed from someplace that's not accountable in that community. Exactly. All right. So the future for workers in the tar sands is not looking that bright, regardless of climate change. Uh, But certainly with climate change, we need to be transitioning away from that. So what about people who work in oil and gas now? Well, it's interesting because you and I have talked about this. This is where we thought we would find a huge amount of resistance to this whole topic of making a transition to a clean energy economy. The people who work in the industry and are worried about losing their jobs. But everywhere I went, that wasn't necessarily so. Now, I talked to Gavin McGarrigal. He's the area director for BC for Unifor. That's that big private sector union. They represent a ton of oil and gas workers. We actually met up at a conference on green jobs. You know, there's nothing wrong with those uh, folks out there who are trying to get a better life for themselves, and nor is there anything wrong with folks that are trying to hang on to their life. And if you're a 51-year-old worker with 27 years seniority with a $30 an hour job and a defined benefit pension plan and benefits and all of those things, and somebody comes along and says, well, I'm going to retrain you for a job that pays $14 an hour, that's not too appetizing for most people. And if you were to ask workers, do you believe climate change is real? They would say yes. Do you believe it's caused by human activity? Yes. Do you believe we need to do something about it? Yes. Do you believe you should have your pay cut by 70%? Hell no. We're in the fight. We believe in it. We want to do something about it. But we have to make sure that we take care of the working class as we do it. Um, They will transition to something else, but you can't expect them to drastically uh, throw themselves and their families under the bus as they do it. So yeah, it's hard to imagine anybody lining up to volunteer for a big pay cut. Um, So how can we support these workers in shifting to this new economy? probably is going to be a bit challenging. I spent some time with Liam Hildebrand. He's a boilermaker. He's been working in the tar sands. And he's also been concerned about these things. And so he founded a group called Iron and Earth to help workers make this transition. Liam admits some workers may have to adjust their salary expectations. But he says that's actually happening in the oil and gas industry now. I know myself, I just lost all of my opportunity for double time when working in Alberta. We negotiated that away in our last uh, bargaining. So we're already seeing wage reduction across the board as the energy politics and 
dynamics unfold in Canada. What kind of wage drops are we talking about? Well, it's hard to get exact figures. You always seem to be comparing slightly different sets of information when you do this. But a quick search for renewable energy jobs on Indeed.com would show more than 1,000 jobs ranging from fifty dollars to $130,000 in salary. So, you know, Caitlin, we're still talking about a livable wage here. We're not talking about going to minimum wage for these jobs. Maybe as Liam says, with the overtime and so on and so forth, not the huge payday some of them have been having. So, I mean, a question that you and I have heard a lot is, um, are there really enough renewable energy jobs to replace the oil and gas jobs in the future? Yeah, and you're right. This does come up a lot. And so we thought, ideal fodder for Mythbuster. There are so many people employed in the oil and gas industry, there's no way that many jobs can be created by producing alternative energy. A study by Canada's Building Trades, released last summer, found that producing alternative energy, retrofitting buildings and constructing new infrastructure would result in more than 2 million jobs in construction alone by 2050. And for the past year, the number of jobs in alternative energy have surpassed oil and gas jobs in the US and Canada. More importantly, Looking at oil and gas is only part of the job story. Liz McDowell is with CRED, which is a group of business people, academics and concerned citizens who analyze BC's economic future. So actually, uh, although BC used to be a resource-based province, that's actually not true anymore. So we've had this really amazing story taking place over the past couple of decades where we've had this real shift away from natural resources of all kinds towards a much more highly service-based economy. So right now, three-quarters of all jobs and 80% of our wealth of our GDP in the province comes from services. And that's everything from like retail restaurant workers to healthcare workers. Uh, and in fact, only 1% of us work in oil and gas now. Wow. Myth busted. Okay, so that same study that you referenced talks about how the over 2 million, million jobs in construction could lead to over 20 million spin-off jobs when you look at everything needed to support the construction. Um, by 2050, as we're moving to a net zero economy. Uh, and there's another study out there that talks about how if you invest $1 million, you could get two jobs in oil and gas, or you could get 15 jobs in clean energy. So uh, this is why I hate the numbers thing, because I think that the preponderance of evidence is clear that there are jobs in the renewable sectors. It's not really an excuse for not moving towards a clean energy economy at this point. So let's talk about the quality of jobs and how we get there. Yeah, so often we hear these referred to as green jobs. So let's talk about it. What are green jobs? Green jobs can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but let's start with the ones that are actually in the renewable energy sector. And going back to my conversation with Liam Hildebrand, he says that many of those renewable energy companies are going to still be looking for the same skills that oil and gas workers currently have. Uh, myself, as a boilermaker, I can work with cranes lifting up heavy components. I can weld. I can cut steel. I can fit it into place. I can fasten large components together and those skills are required on a large scale wind energy project they're going to be required in biofuel uh, refineries or upgraders they're going to be required in biomass power generation stations they're going to be required in geothermal projects as well 
Does he think these jobs are directly transferable from oil and gas? Not exactly. There will be some training needed. And, you know, Caitlin, in doing the research for this, I even in the last six months, I've started to see more and more articles about the movement of training former oil and gas workers to work in renewables. A lot of them coming out of Alberta, where they're starting to invest heavily in retraining for the renewable sector. Um, and Liam says we need to see similar investment in BC and, in fact, really across Canada. We really need need a big picture roadmap of where we're going and we need some leadership at the federal level to say okay we are going to make sure as a country we're going to deploy renewable energy technologies as efficiently and effectively as possible while leveraging our existing expertise and this is how we're going to do it we have these workers we have these renewables to build and in the middle here's some rapid upskilling programs for boilermakers, electricians, crane operators, pipe fitters, scaffolders, to make sure that they feel empowered to go get those jobs. And when they get to the site, they can build things as fast as possible and to the highest level of quality as possible. That makes me think about who is going to pay for this training. I know that, um, for example, the federal government gives $3.3 billion per year in subsidies to oil and gas corporations. And here in BC, it's something like um, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in royalty reductions that our provincial government gives every year to oil and gas. So when I think about the training that's needed and how we're going to support workers, I feel like there's an opportunity for governments to maybe shift the subsidies away from the oil and gas and towards supporting these kind of training programs that Liam's talking about. Absolutely. And even more, when I spoke to people from University of Northern British Columbia, for example, the point was made over and over again that the educational sector, government, business and workers all have to be at the table. Business has to promise that they will have jobs there if people invest in training for renewables. So it really is people are are advocating for a a multi-pronged, multi-party approach to making this transition Yeah, because I think what we don't want to see is too often in the the past when you've seen a decline of some industry, you know, we talk about ghost towns a lot in BC, right? And mills being closed and communities really being gutted. And so I think it, you know, we need to think as a society, how are we going to ensure that we can support vibrant rural communities and um, and provide the kind of training that's, that's needed. And set up incentive support to businesses that are starting with some of these new technologies and need the workers, that they can go to the universities and the colleges and say, hey, can you help train? And government can say, yeah, and we'll subsidize that as long as you are providing jobs. When you pack up and leave, no, you don't get you don't get any subsidies. So there are a lot of ways of looking at this to make it happen. And, you know, Caitlin, we... we also need to start looking beyond the oil and gas sector and just renewables. And think about green jobs as part of that whole economy that we were talking about. We've talked in previous episodes about retrofitting. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, huge, huge potential industry. If the government wanted to invest in jobs instead of putting up another great big concrete interchange for a six-lane highway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, we need to be, I mean, retrofitting schools and hospitals. And so there's all kinds of public buildings. And the point point was made to us that right now we're in the process of seismically upgrading a whole bunch of schools and we're spending money to, you know, rip them apart to do that. Why don't we at the same time upgrade them for energy efficiency? 
right. use our use our money wisely to do it. It's the mindset. We have to change the way we're thinking or about this. Or converting our vehicles to electric, like we talked about in the other yeah. episode. Again, as well. invest in that. And and the other thing that, that we've made the point before, but it bears making here because it goes back to your point about what was what was a good job, is that a lot of these jobs that we're talking about are about community building as well. They're about creating jobs that are close to home. People don't have to go away and working camps to do the jobs. So, Caitlin, you know, really, even in our discussion here, we've established that there are a lot of jobs that are going to be there in the next economy. I think, though, it's worthwhile to talk about who will be doing those jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's where this question of a just transition keeps coming up. Um, And there's there's so many ways into this. But, you know, bottom line, it's it's who has access to the work and is the work family supporting? Is there, you know, are there well-paying jobs with benefits that in, in the new economy? Um, you know, I think we need to look at who has been marginalized by the current economy and will there be opportunities for those people in the next one? And, and there needs to be if we want this to be a more equitable, more just society. Um, and, you know, is there a social safety net in place that as people are transitioning, transitioning out of one industry that they can move into another one. How are we supporting them in that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Caitlin, when you talk about who's been marginalized in this economy, it makes me think of First Nations. I think it would be hard to argue that we've had a sense of inclusivity with First Nations in our current economy. Yeah, well, I mean, not only have many Indigenous communities not had access to the jobs in the fossil fuel industries, but their communities have been disproportionately impacted by many of the the environmental impacts and the socio socioeconomic impacts of having you know man camps and so on in near their communities. So, um, so yeah. So as we look to the next economy and clean energy, there's a really big question about how to be more inclusive. Um, and and in fact. Many First Nations are leading the way, are they not? You're right, they are. I was talking with Judith Sayers. She's the president of the Neutralness Tribal Council, and she sits on the board of Clean Energy BC. She told me about a number of small-scale local hydro projects that First Nations are building all around the province, and they're creating jobs. So when you build a power project, it's got a minimum life of 50 years. And so, you know, you have um, the operators of the project and depending on the size of the project, that can be from one to three people that you employ full-time. Plus, uh, you have people who may do operations and maintenance. So if we were to build these 249 projects that First Nations want to build above what's being built now, which is you know, about 70-odd, and we had people around the province, and that's at least 200 people, 250 people minimum, and I would double that to say 500. Whereas you look at Site C, And there's only going to be 25 permanent jobs. So, yeah, our provincial government has decided to go ahead with the Site C Megadam, even though energy alternatives would generate more jobs at a lower cost to BC ratepayers. Yeah, and Caitlin, that's kind of been the mega project mindset that we've had when it comes to energy, is that bigger is better and, and somehow that's creating all the jobs and driving the economic engine. But... That's not necessarily so. And we heard about that in Prince George when we held our gathering. For example, here's what Nadia had to say. I just think that we need to get away from this perspective that chasing the next big smokestack or mega project is what's going to solve issues of unemployment and um, poverty and all of that in small northern BC communities. Because I think that 
hopefully we should have learned that lesson by now because we have been on this boom and bust roller coaster for quite a long time. And, and I don't think that it's really served the long-term interests of residents that live here. And, but we're still being sold that narrative, right? That this mega project's gonna come and it's gonna bring 300 jobs. Um, and of course there's questions around whose jobs and for how long and all that, but, but really it doesn't provide a lot of benefit to local people. And so I think if we're talk talking about $9 billion, like let's invest small pockets of money in like really excellent social services and health services and all those things that actually make up a really large component of the economy. So Nadia's right. We can invest in a whole lot of other social infrastructure. It doesn't have to be mega projects and so on. Caitlin, I want to go back to talking a little bit for a moment about when you said you had a good job, you know, that feel good part of your job. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you remember John Wilson saying, you know, when we talked about electric vehicles and his conversion to the double-deckers, that one of the reasons he's doing it and one of the benefits he's seen from it is his employees are feeling really proud of what they're doing. Now, everybody says going forward, there's going to be competition for the best workers. And so everything you can do to make people feel that they're happy and proud of what they're doing is, is important to do. And who doesn't want to go home at the end of the day feeling good about the work they've done? And I know that people who work in oil and gas take so much pride in the work that they do uh, and bring a lot of skills and are so competent in their work. And, and so how do we combine that pride and that skill set with jobs that are um, supporting our shift away from fossil fuels rather than, than damaging the environment we all depend on? And I spoke more about that with Liam Hildebrand, and you'll hear that in our bonus interview. And that's it for this episode of Mission Transition. In our next episode, we're going to take a closer look at First Nations and what the clean energy economy means for reconciliation. Meanwhile, you can hear more of my interview with Liam and the bonus episode, and you can get other links relating to information in this podcast on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. This is a conversation about the transition to a clean energy economy. And you can join that conversation on our Sierra Club BC Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter. You could win a pair of Sierra Club BC earbud earphones by joining that conversation. Tell us what impact you think the clean energy economy will have on your job. Tag at Sierra Club BC, and we'll enter your name in a draw to take place at the end of March. This podcast series has been made possible by the North Growth Foundation. If you'd like to see Sierra Club BC produce more podcasts, please consider making a donation at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. My thanks this week to Caitlin Vernon. Thank, thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. And Kat Zimmer for her technical assistance. And thank you for listening. <laughs>